It's nice to see you. It's nice to be with you. Uh, greetings to those joining via live stream. Uh, I was reminded again this morning, even as we were praying to, uh, before the gathering, that uh, our reach extends beyond this space and even to some who may be between worshiping communities who need a place to uh, connect, even virtually. And so shouts to, if that's you, if you're between faith communities uh, looking for uh, a place to call home again, Glad that you found a virtual home, at least temporarily, with us here. My name is Nelson. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm honored to have the opportunity to open up the scriptures with you today as we continue in the season of ordinary time. And as we consider, as Sister Joan put it, how our text this morning invites us to make our faith, that is, our embodied trust in Jesus as our center and leader, the force of daily life. Just love Joan Chittister's quote here. Ordinary time is a time for making faith the force of daily life. I don't know about you, I'm enjoying the beauty and the challenge of being in the lectionary this year, in the summer, and particularly in Luke's gospel, where most of us who have been preaching have been uh, sticking around. And that's where we're gonna anchor again today. Before we hear the text from Luke 12 again, let's consider uh, the big picture of what's going on in this part of the story. So imagine Jesus is traveling the countryside with his disciples, women and men, as we were reminded a few weeks ago, teaching, he's healing, he's telling stories, driving out demonic spirits, praying, resting, and people are talking, momentum is building, and crowds are getting larger. In fact, there's this moment in chapter 12, verse one that says, when a crowd of thousands upon thousands had gathered so that they were crushing each other, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. And he goes on from there, which is kind of crazy, right? A little bit funny to me. Did Jesus not see that there is a human stampede going on right in front of him? And if he did see it, did he not care? Let's just talk to the disciples here. These guys will be fine. <laughs> Before I die, I've got to make sure I warn my students about the Pharisees. My thing is going to be less damage in the long run. It's more likely that Luke is exaggerating a little to simply let his readers know that things are heating up. We don't know exactly, but we're probably meant to imagine something along the lines of a busy morning SkyTrain commute as opposed to human crush disaster at a football stadium. It is crowded, but there's no death toll, right? So against that background, it's heating up, momentum, crowds building, we drop into a lengthy section of open air teaching. Jesus addresses his disciples specifically, Luke says, but crowds are pressing in and listening in. We know this because a few verses later, a random unnamed person, all Luke tells us is that it's someone in the crowd, interrupts Jesus with a question, and Jesus offers yet another story in response. So let's hear the text once more now. Luke 12, starting at verse 32 through 40. This time, I'm going to use the Common English Bible, the CEB translation. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights in giving you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. Make for yourselves wallets that don't wear out, a treasure in heaven that never runs out. No thief comes near there and no moth destroys. 
Where your treasure is, there your heart will be too. Be dressed for service and keep your lamps lit. Be like people waiting for their master to come home from a wedding celebration, who can immediately open the door to him when he arrives and knocks on the door. Happy are those servants whom the master finds waiting when he arrives. I assure you that when he arrives, he will dress himself to serve. Seat them at the table as honored guests and wait on them. Happy are those whom he finds alert, even if he comes at midnight or just before dawn. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he wouldn't have allowed his home to be broken into. You also must be ready because the human one is coming at a time when you don't expect him. It's important for us to remember what came immediately before this text as well. It's part of a teaching that also appears in Matthew's gospel, taken from probably Jesus' most well-known and maybe best sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's the part where he says, and I'm gonna paraphrase for time, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat, what you'll wear, look at the birds, notice, how God cares for them, and remember you're worth way more than birds. Consider the lilies. Notice how they don't wear themselves out, yet they still flourish. Why? Because God tends to their growth. Know that you'll be cared for in even greater measure. Stop worrying. It adds nothing. Instead, go after what only God can offer, and you'll get everything else on top of it. And we're like, which is what? What can only God offer? <laughs> Verse 32 tells us, don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights in giving you the kingdom. So much in this one verse alone. So settle in. We're going to spend a lot of time here. First, we have the oft-repeated words spoken by angels, by the God of ancient Israel, by the Christ himself. Don't be afraid. Now, some of you, any like Pinterest fans? <laughs> I was like, is that another kind of demographic? We've got all kinds of demographics here, so who knows who's here. But on, on Pinterest, you might have seen the saying that the phrase, don't be afraid, is written in the Bible 300, doesn't this just scream Pinterest? Yeah, a little bit. So, the phrase, don't be afraid, is written in the Bible 365 times. That's a daily reminder from God to live every day being fearless. Well, sorry to burst your bubble, but the 365 number is a myth. In actuality, do not be afraid or something like it appears just under 150 times, which is still a lot. The point is, don't be afraid is said a lot in the Bible. And most often, it's said by some person of the Trinity or an angelic representative of the divine to humans. It's said enough that we ought to take a minute to remember how vitally important it is to God that the human family doesn't live in such a way that we are constantly crippled by fear. Yeah? So, why is it that so much of the church seems to have radically missed this? Why, when folks think of God, do they immediately get nervous and anxious and fearful? Why are so many people, at least seemingly, 
afraid of God? Such a huge question. And our perceptions of God vary widely, as do the sources of those perceptions. But I wonder if at least part of the answer has to do with how we hear the words, don't be afraid. For example, a lot of us have grown up with the vision of a God who is emotionally disengaged. We get that God loves us, but a lot of us tend to hear that in a more contractual way than anything resembling actual feeling or devotion. Like, isn't loving humanity kind of God's job? Something God has to do rather than God wants to do or gets to do. If that's your picture of what God's like, then it's easy to hear, don't be afraid, as a stern dictatorial veto on emotion, instead of as words of hope or reassurance or a cushion of safety. And the picture isn't helped much when we hear church authorities present it like, don't you dare be afraid, in a harsh voice, harsher than mine. I'm trying to turn on a harsh voice. Thanks for bearing with me and seeing that, the subtext. So these, I think, are a few reasons why people are afraid of God. I'm sure you could think of others or embody others. But what if instead, every time we read the words, don't be afraid in scripture, we perceive them as coming from your closest friend who wants nothing but the best for you? What if we learn to hear them the way Crispin Mayfield hears them? He wrote, I believe these words aren't all that different from the way I comfort my son when he's scared. We regularly walk around our neighborhood and when a loud dog barks from behind the fence, I give his hand an extra squeeze and say, don't worry, you're okay. I'm not banishing his emotion. I'm responding to it. I'm comforting him because I can see in some sense he has a very, very real reason to be worried. Our divine parent does the same. What might it mean if every time you heard, do not be afraid, or don't worry, it was a sign that God sees your fear and worry with a desire to respond with comfort. What if this command is a response rather than a restriction? Oh, that's good. And in this context, in Luke 12, Jesus seems to want to protect his little flock from FOMO in particular, from the fear of missing out. So recall what came before our text, about not worrying, about the birds and the lilies, about trusting that God knows what we need even more than we do ourselves. The clear sense in that teaching is captured well by the message translation of verse 32. Don't be afraid of missing out. You're my dearest friends. The Father wants to give you the very kingdom itself. And how does he address his hearers? which remember included the disciples as well as the crowds. Don't be afraid, little flock. The language is close and personal. He's seeing the people as sheep, intimately known and vigilantly cared for by a good shepherd. It's an agrarian image, a bit removed for most of us as city dwellers, unless you grew up on a farm. But it's one that the disciples and the crowds would immediately connect with. On what basis? 
is Jesus's little flock not to be afraid because your father delights in giving you the kingdom, your good father, a familial image, one where every child's needs are attentively anticipated and lovingly met. And this is something our divine parent delights to do. Don't miss that word. God doesn't give begrudgingly because God isn't stingy. God's not a withholder. And then still in 32, on the basis of God's generous character, Jesus offers what sounds like a really beautiful promise here, the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Is it a destination? Is it a particular locale, a castle? Is it a less concrete but nonetheless clearly discernible reality? Is it a trajectory? Whenever a, a theologically loaded term, like the kingdom shows up, I try to do word studies, right? Based on biblical languages, I consult commentaries. I respect the scholars, I need their help. But also I like to read beyond them because I think we need the poets and the artists and the songwriters just as much. Because in my view, doing theology faithfully and responsibly involves, necessitates fresh imagination and a willingness to look at things from different angles. One of my go-tos, no surprise if you know me well, is an author called Frederick Buechner. I've come to appreciate his response to the question, what is the kingdom of God? Here's what he says. It is not a place, of course, but a condition. Kingship might be a better word. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Jesus prayed. The two are bound together. So insofar as here and there, now and then, God's kingly will is being done in various odd ways among us, even at this moment, the kingdom has come already. Insofar as all the odd ways we do his will at this moment are at best half-baked and half-hearted, the kingdom is still a long way off. A hell of a long way off, to be more precise and theological. Second slide, as a poet, Jesus is maybe at his best in describing the feeling you get when you glimpse the thing itself. It's like finding a million dollars in a field, he says, or a jewel worth a king's ransom. It's like finding something you hated to lose and thought you'd never find again, an old keepsake, a stray sheep, a missing child. When the kingdom really comes, it's as if the thing you lost and thought you'd never really find again is you. The first part of the quote, Beekner is of course painting the kingdom as being both now and not yet. Whatever kingdom actually means or points toward, the notion of kingship I think is a little helpful. We see glimpses of it, but not the whole picture. It has arrived, but it's not fully here. For now, we all see through a glass darkly it's really important to keep this tension in front of us whenever we're discussing the kingdom because it helps us not fall into the trap of either over or under realizing the kingdom yeah over realization says kingdom's fully here so there should no longer be evil in the world everyone should be healed of sickness there should be no more poverty or suffering and everything should be the way god designed it to be now and if you believe hard enough 
If you have enough faith, you will experience it. In fact, you're entitled to it. Just claim it. Which leads some into what's often called a prosperity gospel, which basically holds that if you're not healthy and wealthy and killing it, (laughs) you're doing it wrong. Prosperity gospel is not the gospel Jesus preached. Full stop. Under-realization, on the other hand, says the incarnation of Jesus had zero qualitative effect. It did nothing to usher in or further reveal God's kingdom on earth. Whatever the kingdom is, it's all future. It's all still to come. So the now and not yet uh, reality of the kingdom functions like guardrails to keep us from drifting into the gutter on either side. I also really like Adri Bold for the first time like three weeks ago, so that's where that image came from. I also really like the second part of the Beekner quote because it reminds us how much Jesus loves metaphor. He can't escape it. He never explained the kingdom. He talked about it in pictures. The kingdom is like, looks like, feels like, smells like, tastes like. It's almost as though Jesus didn't want to define it. So that maybe we'd avoid getting stuck in our heads about it. Hear me clearly on this. The intellect is a beautiful, indispensable gift. It's part of our being made in the divine DNA, but Jesus was also huge on the role of imagination in our knowing and in our perceiving, yes? The role of our bodies, of our emotions, The faithful work of theology also means asking questions about what scriptural terms are just not that helpful or worse, problematic, even harmful. What is the kingdom? Is that even the best word to use? So we go back to the scholars. We've been with the poets. We go back to the scholars who, this one's also a poet, scholars who are willing to ask such questions. And it turns out those often tend to be the ones who aren't white or male. Let's listen in on how Dr. Will Gaffney reads Jesus on the kingdom. Buckle up because our sister is about to bring the fire. Jesus and the gospels use the language of king and kingdom. Yet at every turn, Jesus says something to the effect of that's not what I mean by the kingdom. He and his biographers used the old language, the language with which folk were most familiar, to usher in a worldview that transcends both this world and its deeply impoverished language. A kingdom is a patch of land, and Jesus is talking about another world. Not necessarily another planet, but I'm not ruling it out. but an entirely new reality that has no need for skull-crushing monarchs and their axe-swinging troops to keep the peace. Oh. (laughs) Guys, when we begin to read scholars who have lived experience in marginalized bodies, in this case, someone whose particular vocation is to center the perspectives of black women, we can't help but start to see and understand the life and teaching of Jesus differently. There's so much already in this one paragraph, but there's more. Another slide. Jesus says in John 18, 37, you say 
Remember the context? He's, this, is, this is his trial before Pilate. You say I'm a king, but this is why I was born and why I came into the world, to testify to the truth. That truth is that God is not an old man on a throne, white or otherwise. God is not a bigger, badder, richer, more powerful king, tyrant, warlord, or chieftain. Human systems of power and dominion are not accurate reflections of God's way of being in the world. That truth to which Jesus testifies with his being is that the God who cannot be fully known in any word of human devising is here with us on this planet, in this world. God is not in the palace. God is in the street. In Jesus, God was not reclining on the throne of the king, but rather subject to the king's justice. Stretched out on a Roman cross with a crown of thorns beaten into his skull. Whenever I read Dr. Gaffney, we need to take a few minutes of silence just to let it sink in. Are we seeing and appreciating how Jesus testifies to the truth by showing most clearly what God is like? Whatever the kingdom means, it's not in the palace in the street, not reclining on the throne of the king, but subject to the king's justice. The biographers, the gospel writers, seemed for the most part to get this, but they were speaking in the vernacular of the ancient Near East. Luke used language that they would most clearly understand, and what he records as Jesus saying would have landed on the original hearers as radically subversive. The old language of king and kingdom Scriptural as they are, I know. Oh, yeah. The old language of king and kingdom, scriptural as they are, needs the fresh imagination and insight and perspective of scholars like Gaffney. Why? To help us hear, to take seriously the scandal that Jesus is the revelation of who God is and that this revelation is profoundly disruptive. When I came off a uh, month-long ministry break, it was the month of March, I came back in early April, and I shared in a sermon that one of the things that had been contributing to my sense of fatigue was new levels of awareness of how much harm has been done in the name of Christ. The church, generally speaking, doesn't have the best reputation these days. Don't know if you've been aware of that. (laughs) I get why, I feel it deeply. Often when I'm out in public, the question I most want to avoid getting is, so what do you do for work? So much unpacking. I believe we need to be intentional in confessing and lamenting what's been done in the past, what's being done in the present, and continuing to learn to live into more healthy, loving, and whole, Jesus-centered, justice-pursuing ways of being the church in and for the world. I also said around that time that even though so many terrible things have been done because of how the church has mishandled scripture, we still gotta find a way to love the Bible again. Today I'm wondering whether one of the keys to loving the Bible again is to learn to love Jesus first. And yeah, I I realize there's a necessary both and here, but let's not forget, according to the scriptures themselves, Christ is the head of the church, not scripture. Jesus didn't say, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Bible. Jesus invited us to follow him, not a collection of stories and books. Given all this, my growing sense is that if we want to be a truly Jesus-centered community, we ought to give priority time to the Gospels. We've been doing that in our teaching, in our preaching, as we follow the liturgical calendar. It's a great way to remain anchored in the Gospels. But also, how are we, whether alone or in group experiences in our families, being invited to spend time in the Gospels in our own spiritual practice? Maybe a question to sit with as we approach the fall season. Let's come back to the text. So we return to the question, just what this kingdom is that our divine parent delights to give us. Let's take Gaffney's claim seriously that whatever kingdom Jesus was talking about, it surely meant something disruptive. At its core, we can be assured that it will look and feel like a radical upending of human systems of power and dominion. To help us see this from a slightly different angle, I wanna briefly amplify and center the voice of another black woman author is one of my favorites named Lisa Sharon Harper. She wrote a fantastic book a few years back called The Very Good Gospel. Love that. Through her work, she's reminded me that another term for the kingdom is shalom. It's a Hebrew term, usually translated in scripture as peace, but it means much more than the absence of war or conflict. It means wholeness. It means flourishing. It means everything set right. Some theologians, when they speak of the kingdom, add the term peaceable to it, the peaceable kingdom. That gets closer to, I think, what Jesus seemed to be on about. Now, shalom, too, is old language, but I find it more helpful in helping us see and imagine and embody the kingdom as it continues to come on earth as it is in heaven. So I just want to give you a little summary of Harper's book in case you feel like picking it up, diving a little deeper into it. So she says, this is a vision of hope for a broken world. Shalom is what God declared. Shalom is what the kingdom of God looks like. Shalom is when all people have enough. It's when families are healed. It's when churches, schools, and public policies protect human dignity. Shalom is when the image of God is recognized, protected, and cultivated in every single human. Shalom is our calling as followers of Jesus's gospel. It is the vision God set forth in the garden and the restoration God desires for every broken relationship. Shalom is what our souls long for. Shalom is the very good in the gospel. In her teaching, Gaffney helped us see a lot of what the kingdom isn't, right? Where we get it wrong, how Jesus subverts the predominant systems of power. Harper helps us see it for what it is or what it could be. What's here now, what's still on its way, what we need to keep living into and working towards. So as we come back to Luke 12, notice that Shalom also is what 33 and 34 look like. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. In other words, be the kind of people who don't grip too tightly to their stuff, but instead live sacrificially and generously on behalf of others. Make wallets that don't wear out. In other words, get yourselves a bank that can't go bankrupt, as the message puts it. 
a bank free from robbers and embezzlers, a bank you can bank on. Does that sound like shalom to anyone else? Jesus then tells a story as our text continues about watchfulness and alertness and being ready to serve, keep your lamps lit, be like servants waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast. These in theological language are called exhortations, strongly worded encouragements, maybe even commands. But then he follows those up with beatitudes, with blessings. Keeping with the image of servants and masters, Jesus says in 37, happy, blessed, fortunate are those servants whom the master finds waiting up when he arrives. What's this now? Why? Because you get to earn points while the lazy ones are asleep? Because then you'll be looked upon more favorably in the master's eyes? Well, let's keep reading. I assure you that when he, that is the master, arrives, he will dress himself to serve. Seat them at the table as honored guests and wait on them. Happy are those whom he finds alert, even if he comes at midnight or just before dawn. So, is this about being seen as better or more worthy of acceptance or more deserving of divine favors, those who aren't so alert? If that's what we think, we didn't get it from this text. I love Father Robert Capon's comment on this text. Have a listen. When the Lord comes and finds his servants watching, they are blessed because he will gird himself with a servant's towel and make them sit down and he will come and serve them. Their great good luck is that he will come in a hilarious mood. He will not come with sober assessments of past performances or grim orders for future exertions. Rather, he will come with a song in his tipsy heart, a chilled bottle of Dom Perignon in each tail of his coat, and a breakfast to end all breakfasts in his hands. Bacon, sausage, grits, home fries, and eggs, sunny side up. I love this stuff in commentaries. <laughs> Live for it. <laughs> we too then are blessed by the risen Jesus, for he comes to us from his nuptials in death. It's a symbol for him of a death and a rising, and asks only that we wait in faith for him. He will knock at the door of our own death, he will come in and throw us a party. The image of the coming of the Lord in this parable, therefore, is party imagery. Jesus comes to us from a party, and he brings the party with him. Why wait up so we don't miss the party? Why live watchfully? Because otherwise, you might miss the chance to encounter the God who, in Christ, delights to give you the kingdom, to surround you with shalom, to show you most clearly what it looks like in this case, the one who turns power structures and chains of command upside down, who shows us an entirely different kind of power where the one who holds the keys to death and Hades sits his children down and serves them breakfast. Does that sound like shalom? Does that feel like the pictures Jesus paints of what the kingdom is like? Sure does to me. I'm thinking maybe a better piece of punctuation at the end of verse 32 instead of a period would be a colon. So here's what it looks like. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights in giving you the kingdom, colon. Sell your possessions, give to those in need, make wallets that last, treasure the right things, be ready to serve as Jesus did, be ready to be served by Jesus, be alert for surprises of grace, watch for the party. 
if I had to write a commentary. That's, that would be the summary. Are you with me? Everything that comes after 32 is a glimpse of what Jesus calls the kingdom. So in characteristic fashion, Jesus doesn't say, don't be afraid, little flock. The Father delights to give you the kingdom and then follow that with a clear, concise, tweet-length definition of the kingdom because it can't be contained in 140 characters or even 280 or whatever we're at now. Instead of dropping this massive term and saying, and here's exactly what that means, what does he do? Just as in the many other gospel texts where Jesus speaks of the kingdom, he goes out of his way not to define it in some easily containable, airtight way. He uses metaphor. Kingdom's like a tiny seed. The kingdom's like a treasure. The kingdom is like leaven. The kingdom is like a pearl. The kingdom's like a fishing net. Verses 33 to 40 function, in my view, in a similar way. So here's my bold claim, based on this text, based on my current understanding of what the gospel writers are trying to get us to see. Jesus doesn't ever define the kingdom explicitly. Instead, he shows us what it's like by giving us snapshots of shalom. And invites us to stay awake and alert so we don't miss the party. Something happened yesterday in many church traditions called the Feast of the Transfiguration. It's a celebration that flows out of another gospel story, that one where Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up on a mountain and basically puts on a divine special effects show. Some Old Testament stars even show up. Moses and Elijah are there. For a brief time, Jesus becomes radiant in glory, as some translations put it. It's a pivotal moment. As we know, throughout scripture, the mountaintop is a symbol of spaces where humanity encounters the divine, right? That's why Moses and Elijah are symbolic. Only this time, this time, Jesus reveals himself as the connecting point, the bridge between heaven and earth, the embodiment of the kingdom that is both now and not yet. So this image, is an icon of the transfiguration by Kelly Lattimore. Some of you might follow him on Instagram. If you don't, highly recommend. Jesus is in the center, flanked by Moses and Elijah, and the disciples in the foreground, kind of shielding their eyes, but they can't look away. This version was painted in 2010. Yesterday, to mark the feast, Kelly posted a new version on Instagram. Here's what that one looks like. He titled it Glitch Transformation, or Transfiguration. <laughs> Glitch Transfiguration, here's the caption. A happy accident by my nephew Elliot and I this past summer. Like Peter in Matthew 17, we are often tempted to try and create our own transfigurations, create our booths. Although we often mean well, using grand displays of music, liturgy, and art, to bring the divine down to earth. The thing is, what we are trying to contain is always right in front of us. It is divine that Jesus doubled down being human, wounds and all. Peter fails to see that Jesus cannot be confined to one location. Remember how the story goes? Let's just build booths here, let's stay here. Let's stay in this moment. 
He can't tie down and domesticate the wild spirit of God's kingdom. We are being called to follow Jesus to Jerusalem, into the unknown. The light we think we hold has already been reflecting and scattering in all directions. That's the end of Lattimore's comment. So today, my loved ones, my friends, as we come to the table, may Jesus give us eyes to see and grace to welcome, to receive, to live into, to trust the wild spirit of God's peaceable kingdom. May the light of God's shalom be reflected and scattered through our lives with the help of the Spirit. And may we have courage to follow Jesus in the week to come, whatever it may hold for us. Amen.